Hey everyone, my name is Ben Gramico. I'm from InterNACHI. That's the International Association of Certified Home Inspectors. And we're doing an InterNACHI webinar. Uh, InterNACHI webinar is always free, open to everyone, live, uh, interactive. So you can ask questions if you'd like. Um, and uh, if you register for a webinar and a phone call uh, happens and you got to schedule a job or go, do it because we record every webinar that we do and then we put it up on our YouTube channels and Facebook and things like that. So if you wanted to register for the next webinar, go to this URL, natchi.org slash webinar, natchi.org slash webinar. And then you're, there you'll find a bunch of different kinds of webinars, home inspection training webinars, um, webinars about software, webinars about performing inspections. Um, my boring webinars, those are the most boring ones. The really good webinars that we do is when, when we have a, um, a special guest or two. And today we do, we have Joe Deneler and Ben Garrison, and we're gonna talk about handling complaints uh, and responding to people who have a complaint about your home inspection service um, and uh, tips on uh, handling those things. And um, Ben Garrison and Joe Deneler, they're from also InterNACHI's insurance program as well. And we can talk about that as well. The number one thing is because the webinar is live and interactive, feel free to ask questions. So somewhere on your computer screen or your device, there's a little button to ask questions or chat. We'll be taking a look at them. Feel free to ask questions. And uh, Joe and Ben, I really appreciate uh, you two taking the time to um, spend time with us on InterNACHI webinars and uh, teach us a little bit about handling claims and uh, handling customer complaints. I really appreciate it. Well, we're glad to be here, Ben. Thank you very much for letting us have this opportunity to talk to everybody. This is obviously a, a big ticket item for us <clears throat> at the InterNACHI Elite Insurance Company because, um, you know, our primary uh, reason for being there is to handle these things for you so you don't have to. So it's a timely topic um, as we move into another year where um, we'll have uh, some disruption, but, but soon we will have none um, the way it looks and, and we want to be ready to go. Um, and be able to handle things as they come up in 2021. So again, thanks for having us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, for those who don't know us, I'm the general counsel and the uh, chief officer of risk management and claims for the um, Elite InterNACHI Insurance Company. Ben Garrison, who's here with me, uh, is our national sales manager for that program. Um, and, and as Ben said uh, in the beginning of this, please feel free to ask questions. That actually makes the presentation much better on our end. And the number one thing you don't want to do, don't, do not want to do when you get a customer complaint is to ignore it, right? You want to respond and you want to respond well, and you don't want to be bumbling and fumbling around. So you're going to give us some tips on how to handle well customer complaints or inquiries. Yeah? Correct. Yeah, I think so, the worst thing you can do is, is to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. Um, because oftentimes those things are not going to go away automatically when you're dealing with an emotional person who's bought a home, who feels like you were negligent in some way, shape, or form. And if they go unaddressed, um, that is probably the worst thing you can do. And that's why we have mechanisms in place to help you. And kind of the essence of this presentation discussion is to what happens, the types of claims, why they happen, as well as what to do in the event of, uh, of a claim or some sort of incident you want to um, uh, discuss with your insurance agent and, and employ the risk management tools available to you. Cool. So 
I thought we'd start by just talking briefly about what, what actually makes up a claim. Um, that term is used and thrown around a lot, um, especially in our industry, but <clears throat> I wanted to just give a little refresher about the types of claims that are made against inspectors. Generally speaking, the claims are usually by the buyer of the house. Um, and these are the five types of, of claims or causes of action that we usually see asserted against a home inspector. Negligence, uh, breach of contract, which is breach of your inspection agreement. Uh, misrepresentation and fraud, there's violation of state consumer protection law, and then there's always state uh, licensing board matters. So all these types of things can constitute a claim. And, and inartfully or not, these are, these are how your, your client or um, your client's attorney or, or possibly the broker or agent involved in the transaction is going to tell you what they think you did wrong, where you made your mistake. And so these are the types of things that are thrown around. Now, Negligence is essentially a breach of the standard of care. So the standard of care is the failure to adhere to the applicable standard of care followed by a reasonably prudent home inspector in your area. Um, if you're in a state that's regulated, uh, the standard of care comes directly from those administrative regulations or codes that are enacted in your state. If you're in a state that doesn't have specific home inspector regulations, then you would use, uh, in your case, you would use the InterNACHI standards of practice. Um, and they would constitute your standard of care for your state. And so when somebody says you're negligent, or even when they say you breached your contract, what they're really saying is that you did not do what a reasonably prudent home inspector in your area would have done under the same or similar circumstances. And that's how a jury or a judge or an arbitrator uh, is going to evaluate whether or not you as a home inspector would be liable if the claim, you know, mushroomed into something more like litigation or an arbitration matter. And these are the typical parties that are usually involved in a claim or a complaint by a client. Um, the buyer, again, the, the large majority uh, of the claims and, and reports that we get from our insureds uh, are the buyer making the claim, not the seller. It's, it's very rare anymore that we have actual seller claims against inspectors. Um, they arise two different ways. One way is with a, a pre-listing inspection. The other way is where a seller believes <laughs> for the most part that you did re a really good job and, and found a lot of defects and they don't agree with that um, because it's reducing the selling price. Um, the real estate brokers and agents for buyers or sellers are usually involved in the transaction in some respect or in, in the claim in some respect. Um, and general, or sometimes they'll be the people asserting the claim for uh, your client. Uh, the home inspector, you are obviously part of the claim. Uh, and sometimes we have contractors um, sometimes there's attorneys involved in the transaction that end up involved in the claim. And sometimes, but very rarely, uh, we get the prior owners in the chain of title that are involved in the claim. But these are usually the players. Um, and these are the people that we as an insurance carrier would start to look at in terms of who may have some responsibility for the claim being made by the client. And of course, when we talk about claims, um, we, we have to discuss the contractual defenses which are available to you in most states including limitation of liability, liquidated damages clauses, uh, the scope of work or scope of inspection clause, you're specifically contracted for exclusions, uh, any contractually modified statute of limitations or limitation period to bring a claim, and arbitration clauses. So when we evaluate claims, and, and certainly when you're looking at a claim, these are the types of things that you should be looking at first. Um, and we're going to go through a little procedure of how you can handle these, but you need to be familiar with what's in your agreement in order to properly 
defend yourself against a, a complaint by a client or something that becomes more like litigation or arbitration. Um, it's really important that you understand what's in your agreement because you may have to explain this to your client as part of the claim response procedure. Um, it's very important that your client be able to understand what was in the contract. Uh, if you're insured uh, in the Elite Internacci Insurance Program, we provide those contracts to you uh, and they're specifically tailored to your state. And certainly if you're in a non-regulated state, um, you could use the uh, Internacci standards um, as the standard of care. But you need to be able to, to talk about these things when you talk to your client. This may not be the thing you lead with when you're responding to a complaint from a client, but it's certainly something that you have to keep in mind and you should make them aware of why you're discussing what they think is the claim against you. And, and again, it's key to remember that limitation of liability or liquidated damage clauses are not available in every state. Um, you need to know whether or not your state will enforce this clause before you start using it as a way to negotiate your way out of a possible claim. Um, because if you're making hollow allegations that this is going to be able to be applied in your case, uh, you may run into a situation where a lawyer um, looks at that and says, no, it's not, and, and plows right ahead with a lawsuit, which is something we don't want to happen. And these are the typical damages that are available um, in a claim against a home inspector. We have the repair costs. Sometimes there's relocation costs if the damages are significant enough that the people can't reside in the home. Uh, replacement costs, that usually deals with damaged items during the inspection, um, whether it's knocking over a lamp um, or, or leaving water running or, or damaging any type of surface or other, other uh, part of the property that you're inspecting on behalf of someone else. Um, sometimes they'll ask for diminution in value. And what that really means is they're claiming that the house is worth less because of that defect. Now, it, they can't claim diminution and repair costs at the same time. And that's something you want to keep in mind when you're responding to claims. That, that if the condition that is causing the claim is repaired, then there's no diminution or, or lowering in value of the inspected property. Um, treble damages and attorney's fees are usually only available in a consumer fraud claim. Uh, most every state in the country has some form of a consumer fraud uh, administrative regulation or statute on the books. Uh, and if you're guilty of that or found guilty of that in a civil action, your damages can be tripled and you may also have to pay the attorney's fees. So when you get the lawyer letter uh, about a claim and they start talking about consumer fraud, this is what they're angling to do. And that's something you need to be aware of if, if you're faced with a claim that involves those. And then there can be statutory fines uh, and that's usually just uh, based on a claim uh, by an administrative body or regulatory body in your state um, who controls your license and finds you for some specific deviation or, or infraction that a consumer reports to them. So we're going to talk a little bit now about how we deal with these things on a micro level. And as was said in the beginning, never ignore questions or complaints. Um, it, unless the situation becomes so volatile that you can't communicate in good faith with these people, you can't ignore them. If you're in a state that's regulated, most of the ethical regulations will require you to answer reasonable questions by your client after the inspection. But it's a good practice to get into to never ignore them and to always act on them and respond promptly. Uh, and the reason for that is people get more agitated when they feel they're being ignored. This is really the critical stage when they first come to you where we have the best opportunity to either get rid of this thing at inception 
or resolve it at a reasonable number if that's appropriate based on the circumstances. So you should always be ready to, to answer, answer questions from your clients. Now, some of the bigger inspection companies have people in place that handle that on a regular basis, just like you would at any other larger company. Uh, we have several of our insureds that have a situation like that in place where they have somebody at the office who is responsible for managing claims and complaints. That's something you should definitely have in place uh, as any kind of business is who is responsible for responding to these complaints and what do we do? Now, if you're in a smaller operation um, where it's you or just you and your spouse, uh, you're going to be the person who has to respond to these things in addition to doing all the work. And I understand that that becomes problematic uh, for a lot of people because there just aren't enough hours in the day. But you do need to make time to, to respond to questions or complaints from your clients. Now, if you're too busy during the day, um, you should be using email or, or some other method to communicate with people. I always suggest when you're responding to any kind of inquiry from your client that, that might lead to a complaint that you do everything in writing. Uh, and the reason for that is I, we wanna be able to show how this claim developed and what people said about the claim at the time they made it. In addition to that, we don't want anybody to ever say that you agreed to resolve something or agreed to pay some sum of money orally and there's no written document to back that up because you, as you can imagine, sometimes claimants uh, in these things uh, are a little bit greedy and a little bit um, uh, untrustworthy. Um, they may see dollar signs and they may be making a complaint that has no basis in fact. Um, and we wanna make sure we have documentation of all that. Um, you should, some firms use a complaint form uh, that they'll send to their client and have them fill it out. Some, some, some bigger companies do that automatically through email uh, and have a, a complaint process by which somebody can upload a complaint to them. Uh, these things are all great, but if you're not in a position in your business to, to use all those tools, then certainly email works um, and, and you can send them something by email that gives them an opportunity to say exactly what they think is wrong. It's good before you start to respond to the complaint that you have a very good idea of what the actual complaint is um, because you can't possibly handle it or be prepared to handle it unless you know exactly what's going on. Um, the other point I wanted to make here is you need to handle these things in a professional and courteous manner. And, and I know sometimes that's difficult and particularly with professionals um, being one or, or playing one on TV sometimes I fully understand that it's difficult sometimes for us to accept that somebody thinks we did something wrong. Uh, but you have to step back and treat these as a business uh, transaction. And essentially, you're going to go out there and represent your company in this. And you want to have your best face on and, and you want to do your best job and be a professional throughout the negotiations. And the reason is um, everything we write down today on social media or anywhere else lives forever. Um, if you're going to write a text to your client in response to a complaint that is um, full of uh, unsavory language um, or is accusatory or makes you appear to be somebody who's not acting in a professional manner, those things live forever. And, and if your claim becomes a lawsuit, it's probably going to be blown up on a, on a, a two foot by four foot exhibit for a jury to look at throughout the trial. And so you always want to have your best foot forward and, and and remember, you're representing not just you, but your business. And you want to make sure that you represent it in a way that nobody can ever say that despite this, this dispute, um, that you didn't do exactly what any reasonable person would do under the circumstances. 
And then the final point I just wanted to make here was you need to know when to contact your insurance carrier. And I, I have to tell you, this one, this part's the most painful for me. It, um, for 20 years before I became the uh, general counsel for this insurance company, uh, I was a litigator and I represented home inspectors in litigation. That was my entire practice. And the worst calls I would ever get from inspectors uh, were the calls where they say, Joe, can you help me out? Um, I have a matter. I submitted it to my insurance carrier and they won't cover me because they say I knew about this last year and I didn't tell them about it then. And, and that's really the worst call in the world because at that point as, as the attorney, I have to start going through the process of here's how much money you're going to spend out of pocket to deal with this issue because it wasn't properly reported. And, and insurance companies differ, and, and I can always speak to what we do. How, how we handle this is we want you to report everything. We, we call it worry-free reporting. And, and the reason I instituted that when we created this company was because I never wanted to have that call again with an insured and have to tell them you didn't give anybody notice and therefore we can't cover the claim. Most of your policies, uh, insurance policies, E and O are written on a, what we call a claims made basis. And what that means is that you have to report that claim during the policy year when you first obtain knowledge of it. And, and it's critical that it be reported during that period. Now, some companies have a 60 day requirement from when you first get notice. Um, we really look at it a little bit differently. We want you to report everything to us immediately when it happens. And the reason a lot of people would not uh, report things to their carrier um, was because um, they were afraid it was going to be, be a claim on their policy and a black mark and that even though they didn't do anything wrong or it wasn't going to become something, uh, they didn't want to report it for fear that it was going to impact their insur insurability or their premiums. Um, and, and we don't want you to ever feel that way in our company. So what we do is, is you report everything to us. If I don't have to write a check to settle a claim on your behalf, or I don't have to hire a local attorney to represent you, then that never becomes a claim on your policy. Um, and we handle it that way because it's just not fair to you to have a black mark on your policy or have a premium increase over something that didn't cost us any money. So what we want you to do is report it to us as an incident. We'll assist you with the, the pre-claim or the pre-litigation response, including writing a letter to your client, um, explaining why you're not responsible. And it, or if it's something you wanna resolve within your deductible, um, we'll help you resolve it with a, <clears throat> a release agreement that provides confidentiality and ensures that there will be no further claims related to that inspection. That's how we handle them. I can't speak to other companies, but the main thing to keep in mind is, is no matter who you're insured with, once you know that there's a possible claim, you're obligated to report that to your carrier if you want coverage to attach later on. And, and understand these things may look small when they first come across your desk, but they, they grow exponentially really fast, especially when the other side gets an attorney involved and they start seeing dollar signs. <clears throat> and so you need to keep in mind that even though it might look small right now, or you think, oh, you know what, even if I'm responsible, it's only gonna cost me a couple hundred bucks and you don't report it, and then your policy renews and you never put it on your application for renewal that this may become a claim, well, then you're not going to have coverage for it. Now you're going to be out on your own. You're going to have to hire your own attorney or you might be in a, a worse position where you have to represent yourself in court. Um, unlike criminal court, there is no public defender in civil court. 
Um, and, and I can assure you that that's the last place you want to be for, for several reasons. The least of which is you don't want to be there when you're, when you're paying money out of your pocket because you don't have coverage simply because you were afraid to pick up the phone or send an email to your carrier. So we, at our company, we eliminated that process. But you have to give us notice. Um, and we promise we won't count it against you unless we have to write a check. And that's, that's the agreement we make with our insureds. But if you're not insured with us, uh, you should definitely reach out to your broker or agent or, or your carrier and find out exactly when you have to identify a claim to them and, and report it to them. And what happens as a result? Will it count as a claim on your policy? You should be aware of all these things and your insurance provider should be able to provide you with that information. Um, do we have questions at this point that are, is a good time to take some questions about those issues? Yeah, I think there's a good question here that came through with, regarding some of the, uh, the smaller issues that inspectors would, would ideally or want to handle on their own. Um, at what point, if it's a small issue where a refund of a fee is, uh, is being issued or something maybe within the deductible, what is your stance on reporting that versus handling on their own and getting a release form um, uh, drafted and one that's proper? The release form is the critical thing there to consider first and foremost. And, you know, again, in our company, we do it a little bit differently. Uh, even if it's a, you're just going to refund a fee, we want to help you with that. And it's not going to be a claim. So the way we deal with it is I prepare the release and the release document's critical because errors in the release document can result in that claimant now being able to take a second bite at the apple. Um, and so if you're insured with us, we want to give you that release form. And, and just to give you an example, if, if you're in California um, and you're trying to release a claim related to an inspection, uh, if you don't have specific statutorily created language in that agreement with an additional place for your client or the claimant to sign off on that says that they understand that this is going to apply to any claims, whether known or unknown, well, then they can come back next year and sue you for something different related to the inspection and you don't have an argument. And, and so it, at least for our insureds, you know, we, we want to provide you with that release because we created a special release for every state in the country. Um, and we, we constantly review those. We actually have a team of attorneys here that review them uh, to make sure that they're still up to date. So we always want to help you with that at our company. But if you're not insured with us, then I would say that um, you know, you should check with your carrier or your broker or agent and have them explain to you what your responsibilities are. Uh, but if you're going to resolve claims on your own um, and you're not insured with us, I, I strongly recommend that you have whatever release agreement you plan to use or you're using be reviewed by an attorney in your state and, and tooled, you know, tuned up as needed to fully insulate you um, from any possibility of a claim. Um, the other thing is you want to make sure sure that that release has a confidentiality vision. Um, you know, part of the reason we settle these things or you settle these things is to keep people off social media talking about something that, that either is frivolous um, or is something or worse, it's something that's, that's an accurate claim. And if you're buying the release, the last thing you want is to give them the ability to then go on social media and say, hey, they paid me a bunch of money for a mistake they made. That's not how you want this to end. That's exactly what we're trying to prevent. And so in today's modern world with social media and, and customer reviews and instantaneous communication, we have to make sure that we fully insulate you from somebody being able to talk about this after the fact. And again, 
you know, you need to have somebody with some knowledge about how these things work, craft that language so that it doesn't become a problem for you later on, especially when you write a check. That must be the worst call to take, right? Is, is I paid somebody $2,000 out of my $2,500 deductible. I didn't tell my insurance carrier. So the deductible hasn't been expended as far as they're concerned. And my release didn't have the proper language to insulate me from future unknown claims by this same person. So now I have to pay them again. And again, out of pocket because I never reported it. So the release agreement has to be right. And if you're gonna do these on your own or, or if you're somebody who just doesn't choose to buy insurance, then I, I would strongly recommend that you at least retain a lawyer in your area to prepare that agreement. And, and understand that there's no dollar value as far as the insurer is concerned on, on what constitutes a claim. You know, that there's not a policy out there that I know of that says, well, if it's under $1,000, it's not really a claim, you don't have to report it to us. And again, the, the key is that you don't know if this thing's gonna blow up later on when you make that decision not to contact your carrier. Um, but if you're gonna set them on your own, have, a, have an ironclad release that's been reviewed by an attorney in your area. Um, and, and make sure also that um, people can't write things about you on social media after you pay them. I mean, those are the two critical issues. And it, I'll say this, that, you know, settlement is, is not something that anybody really wants to do when they're faced with a claim. Um, and there's a, a myriad of reasons why you don't want to resolve it for one reason or another. But the reality of, of the world of litigation and claims, which is where we live, is that um, 97 or 8% of every claim resolves before it ever becomes a trial. And, and every 95% uh, of all litigation that's filed is eventually settled before you get to the trial. And, and there's a reason for that. And, and the reason is the great unknown, which is what is a judge, a jury, or an arbitrator gonna do with this claim if it becomes a lawsuit? Um, and, and because of that unknown factor, you know, we want to try to buy certainty in, in some respects. And if you can resolve something with a refund of the fee and a signed release um, that might cost you $2,000 or $3,000 to defend even in small claims court, as a business decision, it's the right decision to make. It, it's not going to taste good and you're going to hate to write that check. But if you've been through this process, you understand what a drain it is on your business to have to deal with this. Um, it's not just that check. If you're a solo operator, it's your time. I can tell you that if you have a lawsuit, there's going to be many days where you're not working because you're dealing with the lawsuit. Um, and, and your deductible is going to go right out the door. And then the other part of this is, and again, I, you know, in our insurance company, we do things differently, but most insurance companies look at this and they'll, they'll see well, there was a lawsuit and there were defense costs of $15,000. And because there were costs of $15,000, um, you know, your premium is going to go up by two grand next year. And that money is being spent even, even if we win the case. So we never want anything to get the litigation. And, and sometimes the best way to avoid that is to, to, to write the check to refund the fee. And again, I, I don't say that you know, frivolously and I, and I know that it's your money and every dollar counts. And, and believe me, I understand that. I, I grew up in a small business. Uh, that's what my family did. And I know what those things mean. Um, but again, my job is to make sure that you don't dig a hole that's a two or $3,000 hole rather than pay 300 today. And so you should keep that in mind that 
some cases should settle um, and for good reasons. Now, in our company, we look at things a little bit differently when we look at, at those claims that were settled, because what I'm looking for is whether or not the attorney hired by your prior insurance carrier knew what they were doing. Um, I see way too many claims where there was twenty or thirty thousand dollars spent on the defense lawyer and the case settled for five grand. I mean, somebody somebody should lose their job in that situation, right? Because the only thing that should be on that policy is five thousand dollars, not twenty five thousand. And the way insurance works is you get indemnity and defense. And the defense is what they spend on the lawyer and all the litigation costs and the experts and all that. And the indemnity is what they have to pay in a settlement or judgment. And so if the indemnity is that low, there's no reason in this world for somebody to pay a lawyer 20 grand. But what happens is that 20 grand is now on your loss run and it follows you for about five years. Now, I look at those a little bit differently. You know, Ben and I get together with our underwriting team and, and the insured. And if we see something that looks like, you know, the, the defense lawyer was just billing the file and it really shouldn't have cost that much, we take that into consideration. I, I can't speak for other companies or how they do it. Um, Usually they just look at the bottom line and say, well, it was a $25,000 claim. We're going to increase your premium X. And we really don't care whether you were right or not. Um, so again, these are all the things you want to keep in mind when, when you think about the claim and the cost of it and, and what it might be if you don't resolve it today. And I'm sorry, that was a super long winded answer to a simple question, but um, when we see, that's, uh, that's what you get. <laughs> see a loss run report that has uh, $55,000 in legal expenses and then a $5,000 settlement that uh, that begs some questions as to what happened, why, and if the, uh, if, if the inspector was properly defended and how that was, how that was handled by uh, the appointed counsel or the internal claims adjusters for, uh, for the insurance company managing it. Yeah, I mean, you can see Nick had posted something, I think, last week or the week before, and we actually have another one coming out soon. But he and I, he and I actually reviewed one for somebody in, uh, that had a death claim uh, and multiple physical injuries. And, you know, they were staring down, not getting insurance. And we actually wrote them and didn't increase their premium um, when nobody else would write them. So that, that's kind of what we bring to bear on it is we kind of... We don't look at it as an insurance company. We look at it as an insurance company that was solely created to help inspectors. And what can we do to best help you to make that albatross of a $25,000 claim uh, never hit your loss run? I think that's kind of the, the nucleus of our claims management and, um, and, and, and the, the reason why we started the, the, the program that we did is there's been this ongoing myth of, I can't tell my insurance company anything. They're going to deny me coverage. They're going to increase my rates. And the whole intent is to get out in front of these things. And we have uh, qualified people um, and someone like Joe that has 20 years experience that are, that are managing this. So you feel a sense of comfort and, and there's a, definitely a sense of conf confidence in, in, in managing these so they don't turn into huge expensive issues. Um, if we can get them early and get them uh, resolved properly, whatever path that may be. So we want to definitely encourage uh, everyone to reach out that's insured to us, let us know, let us help you and not, uh, not brush these under the rug and turn into larger, greater issues down the road that may, uh, that may be very problematic and costly. Yeah, back then, when I was a home inspector for uh, a dozen years, the risk actually back then was to tell your insurance company anything, right? Well, that was the yep. risk. Now the risk, it seems like you're saying is um, 
the risk now is thinking that you can handle it on your own. That's the yeah. risk without informing international insurance, uh, elite MGA insurance. Um, yeah. Now you've given home inspectors under your program tools and procedures that they can follow that doesn't expose them to a bunch of risks. You give yeah. me stuff to do, a form, reviews, agreements, and a process that I can follow now. And that's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it, Ben. You're you're 100 right. That's really what we're trying to do. Is you know we saw a void here, um, and it, like I said, for 20 years, you know, seeing inspectors get bogged down and, and it, or, or you know taking loans to pay legal fees because they didn't report something. It, it, it's a much worse problem, you know, than 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 I think a lot of people realize unless you've been through that process of a claim and then lived with that thing dragging that anchor. Uh, with you next year when you're trying to get insurance. It's, it's really problematic. Um, and, and that is why we did this. And it was a big part of why we did this. And, um, you know, so far, it's, you know, we're a year in now with this company and, and we've resolved a lot of matters um, for either no payment or something very small or, or within the deductible. And these things aren't going to show up on that insured's loss run next year. And, and even if they leave us, it's not going to be on the loss run they get from us when they go apply for new insurance. You know, we're not here to penalize you for going somewhere else. Um, but we just want to make sure that you have every advantage when it comes to the claims. You're paying good money for this insurance. Why shouldn't we back you up 110%? And, you know, the other thing you don't have to worry about that I hear a lot of people talk about when, when they say, I don't want to report it to my carrier is, oh, they're just going to settle it. Um, that's true in some cases. Our company, we're not allowed to settle it without your consent. Um, so we can't go settle it behind your back. And, and tell you it's done and, and write the check and collect your deductible and everybody goes away. Uh, we don't do it that way. Um, we, if you wanna settle the claim, we'll settle. If you don't wanna settle it, there's procedures in place in the policy of how that works, but we can't, we can't go settle that claim on your behalf and pay somebody without you saying it's okay. Um, and there's some companies that do do that and some don't. I'm fairly certain we're the only ones that do the worry for reporting, but, um, uh, you know, some companies do do look at it uh, that way in terms of uh, whether it's a claim. Um, so, but we we definitely look at it that way. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention that that is a critical part of the response to a, a claim or a complaint is site visiting. Um, you need to go out there if at all possible and see what they're talking about. And I'll tell you this from a purely unscientific um, <laughs> opinion of mine, based on 20 years of doing this, is. You know, we have an advantage with this type of claim because for the most part, far and away for the most part, we're not dealing with people who are physically injured. It's not somebody who slipped and fell who can't go to work for six months. We're not dealing with somebody who, you know, broke an arm and, and, and they missed out on a job opportunity. For the most part, we're just dealing with sticks and bricks. Um, and that makes it a lot easier for us to do our job, obviously, because um, with personal injury, there's no guideline for the value of that injury that we give to a judge or a jury or an arbitrator. They get to decide that. And so what you end up, you know, if your, your fate's going to be decided by 12 people in a room and they may say, well, you owe somebody a million dollars for that back injury. That doesn't happen for the most part in home inspection cases because um, the death cases are rare. The physical injury cases are rare. Um, and we know what the cost is to repair something. And that's really all the jury can award for the most part. Um, but
But with the site visits, it's important you get out there from an unscientific standpoint because it's just true that more people are, are, are they're less prone to sue you or bring a claim if you go out there and, and you, you listen to their complaint and you try to explain to them why that wasn't part of your work. People are less likely to sue somebody that they like. That, that's the reality of it. Um, now, if the dollar value is so high that they have to get something fixed and there's no way, other way to do it, um, then they're going to make a decision to sue you. But in, 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 in situations where you know, the liability isn't that clear, they're less likely to sue you if you respond to them professionally and if you go out there and, and take a look at their problem. Um, you need to go out there and see the conditions too because it may have been some time since your inspection. And you know, it, it, time is a, is a big factor in terms of what was visible or readily accessible to you at the time you were in the house. Um, things change. You know, I live in the Northeast where uh, weather conditions alone can cause a lot of changes to a home over the course of a year. Um, and so you need to go out there and see what was changed. And um, the other thing you're looking for there too is what's different, right? Because you may have been in that home when it was staged by the seller. There were rugs in certain places. There, were, uh, there was art on the walls in a particular room and that's changed now. And now the conditions that you can observe are different than what you could observe during the inspection. And so that's something you want to be able to take notice of. Um, also, it's important you get out there right away and take as many photographs as possible because there's a time period between when uh, something happens and somebody has to file a lawsuit. And that's usually called the statute of limitations. Um, in some states like New Jersey, it's four years. So they have up to four years to bring that lawsuit. So if they tell you about it now, you want to get the pictures of what it looks like now because that's much closer in time to when you did the inspection. You don't want to wait until they file the lawsuit four years later and then go out there and see what it looks like four years later because that's not going to help you defend yourself. Um, and so it's critical that we get out there and preserve the evidence. And that's why I say in the slide, photograph, photograph, photograph. You want to preserve the evidence not only of the defect that they're pointing out to you, um, but what else is different about the house since you were there. Um, it's a good idea to review your home inspection report before you go back out to the site, no matter how long of a time period it's been uh, from inspection to the reporting of the claim. Um, but when you go out there, you want to photograph everything. And, and the other thing I'll, I'll tell you, too, is you're not out there at that moment, for the most part, to resolve something. Now, if you happen to go out there on that first visit and you come to some agreement with the client and you're going to pay them, uh, you need to make sure that you don't pull the trigger on that until you get the release signed. Um, and again, the release needs to have critical components to protect you in the future and to insulate you from any, any publishing of that information. But for the most part, you're going out there and, and your stock answer should be, you know, I have to go back to my office and review everything in total based on what I saw today and the pictures I took in my prior report. And then I'll respond to you about my position on your claim. Uh, because you don't want to make snap decisions there. You might see something in the photographs an hour or two later. Um, that, that might change your mind. The other thing I'll say to you too is, uh, and this is true of a lot of home inspectors that I've met over these 20 years, is uh, you're generally helpers. You generally want to solve the problem for somebody. And that's, that's noble. Um, unfortunately, though, you don't, we're in an area now where we're talking about your money and a business decision. And so you don't want to make a frivolous decision at the scene to write a big check because of uh, your, you sympathize with people. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that we're inhuman, but what I'm saying is that you, you're running a business. 
and you need to treat this claim like a business uh, transaction. And you, you don't want to pay for something that you're not responsible for if you don't have to. And so, so site visits yeah, were, were fantastic for my company. I remember going to uh, revisiting homes where people had a complaint and like in the driveway, like from 20 feet away, looking at the, um, I don't know, hole in the roof or something, making it a big deal. Like, oh, I saw that from 20 feet away or going down in a basement and seeing water in the corner going, holy cow, look at all that water or seeing a crack in the foundation going, holy cow, look at that crack. You know, you could see that from 20 feet away. Yep. Making the point that uh, at the time of the inspection, the conditions were different. It, it wasn't readily visible or it was covered up or it wasn't so obvious as it is now. And usually the person with the complaint will make it really big. Like, oh, look how big <laughs> the problem is. And I'll be agreeing with them. I'll be like, look how huge this problem <laughs> is. Uh, obviously, it was different at the time of the inspection. Obviously, it wasn't so obvious at the time of the inspection. So just Absolutely. one of those tips that I, I wouldn't, you know, follow my lead, but that's what I did. Yeah. And I, I think it's prudent to do it because like you said, it, you get to see what things really look like and what's being exaggerated. You know, the other thing too is uh, it's unfortunate, but a lot of our claims that we review arise because, you know, some other contractor threw the inspector under the bus to sell a job. And, and, you know, that, that contractors out there and, and they come up with the problem and they quickly have the solution, which is, well, you know, your insurance, your, your inspector should have seen this. And, you know, you can go after them. They have insurance where they're a business and they can write a check and that'll pay for the repairs that I'm proposing we do. Uh, I'll tell you in, in 2020, uh, the biggest offenders for throwing inspectors under the bus on a nationwide basis were roofers um, and HVAC contractors. Uh, I had many, many claims where somebody was uh, suckered into buying a, an HVAC system that was way bigger than what they needed for their house and that they really didn't need a replacement in the first place. Um, I've had many, many roofers this year throw the inspector under the bus. Um, we had a lot of bad weather in my area, so I saw a lot of claims in the, in the northern part of the country uh, related to, to roof leaks. And, and it's important that you get out there for the site visit because you can kind of diffuse a lot of that throwing under the bus by going out there and seeing exactly what this other professional is looking at and being able to say, well, let me, look, this contractor is telling you that you need this new system or you need these new gutters or you need this new roof covering because of X, but I'm out here looking at it and this is what I saw and this is why that person's wrong. You know, and it gives you that opportunity to, to again, argue your side of the case in some respect. And, and I'll, I'll say this again, if it's, a, if it's a situation where the client is, is angry or, you know, listen, I, I've gone, I've, I used to go to these site visits with the, with the inspector on a lot of these when I was representing inspectors. And it wasn't uncommon for me to see some bizarre stuff when we were there or, or bizarre behavior by the claimant. You should never be putting yourself in any kind of risky situation, obviously. Some people can't be bargained with, can't be negotiated with. Um, those are the people that, that, you know, you should be sending my way, really, if you're insured by us, because why should you be bothering with these people at this point? Um, that's our job, is, is to be the bad cop and to um, take the, the verbal abuse over the phone or the nasty emails and letters. That, that's really what you're paying us to do, um, whether or any insurance carrier for that matter, but that, that's really what you're paying for. So if you have a situation that's out of hand, 
um, then I would say to you, you know, let us handle it. Maybe we would send, some, maybe, you know, it's a case where we need to send somebody out there who isn't involved in it at all. Um, or maybe we need to get a lawyer involved right away for you. Um, but the site, the site visits, as Ben said, are, are critical and they're a really useful tool to, to eliminate something before it becomes a bigger problem. Hey, Joe. Mm -hmm. Backing up here for a second, we had a question about a very small GL claim during an inspection of a light bulb, something um, fairly nominal to a tune of maybe $30, $40. So -hmm. in that situation where an inspector um, may have broken something and the seller, obviously, who owns the property and for such a small amount, what what type of release would you recommend in that situation? Because down the road, uh, once the house closes, it's the buyer that would then be the one um, looking to sue an inspector for negligence. But in this case, being the seller, how do you how do you treat that? Well, God, I hate the worst thing I ever have to say as a lawyer is it depends, but it depends. Um, <clears throat> but I would say this to you that, you know, a lot of times with the GL claims, um, the smaller ones, sometimes you know, the transaction's going to happen within days of the inspection. And once the seller sells the property, it's going to be tough to get them to sign a release. Um, you know, if it's a de minimis thing like 30 or $40 and you just want to give them cash right there, I, I would tell you the best thing you could do is, is to take a picture of the object. Um, you know, and if you really feel a need to get rid of it at that moment, handwrite something out, um, you know, that says, uh, you know, I agree to pay you X for this and, and you sign off and, and we're all done. Now, um, for our insureds, we provide releases that you can fill in the blanks um, and you can have them in your vehicle um, or have them in your, in your notepad and where needed, you can pull it out and fill in the information, have them sign it and give them the money and be done with it, but you got a release. Um, and our releases are, you know, uh, for these types of claims are usually about eight paragraphs maybe a page and a half. So it's not a lot for somebody to look at. Um, the other way we deal with it too sometimes is if we can't get a release signed by the seller for whatever reason, uh, we'll have our policyholder sign a release because that benefit that we're paying under the GL is really for them anyway. Um, and so we'll have our policyholder sign off. But, you know, it's hard for me to say with a straight face that you should get, you know, a two page release signed for a $20 um, object that you knocked over. Uh, but the unfortunate reality of things is, is that we don't know that this person's not going to come back and say, you know what, I realize that this thing is actually worth $10,000. And, um, you know, I didn't sign a release, so I'm going to go ahead and sue you. And, and that, that's, the, that's the risk you take by, by resolving it without a signed release. And so I would say to you, as much as it pains me to say you have to take that extra step, it's probably important to get the release signed, even when it's a $30 object. And report it to us. Because again, it's not going to count as a, if you're with us, it's not going to be a claim. Um, so you can tell us about it. Uh, if you have that situation, I mean, I have a staff. It's really easy for us to email a release to you, you know, within an hour if we have to, to get something done. So again, you know, if you're with us, I, I would say it's in your best interest to get us involved even on that issue. But if you're not, just be, you know, again, know the risk of not getting a release signed and, and paying somebody money is that they may come back later on and, and say that it was worth more or that there are additional problems or things that you broke. Um, we talked about these points that are on the slide now um, throughout the, the conversation we've had. But, you know, again, with your communication, uh, just like you're a professional communicator in the home inspection arena, you know, you, you take your observations and you filter them through your expertise 
and you prepare a written communication, a written report that tells your clients what you saw, what you didn't see, and, and what they should do next. Um, it, it, that's also true when you're responding to a, a complaint is that you know, you're a professional communicator. So as I said earlier, you know, be understanding, uh, but be firm. Don't, you know, don't feel the need to do something because you're right there and you wanna make people smile. Uh, always take the high road. I'd much rather as a, as a lawyer, if I'm representing an inspector, have a bunch of nasty text messages from the claimant rather than a bunch of nasty text messages or email exchanges by the inspector. Um, so as much as it might pain you, I don't, you might need uh, you know, to have a punching bag in your office sometimes to take the abuse uh, out on that. But I would say to you always, again, remember that everything you write down lives forever and, and to be, be knowledgeable about that when you write something to your client. And also make sure your communications are clear. Um, don't hem and haw, be straightforward. I don't think I was responsible, I'm not paying you. Or, you know, I, I don't think I'm responsible, but I'm gonna pay you because I, I just wanna resolve this and get on down the road. Uh, but be clear, don't be ambiguous in, in what you're gonna do or not do. And then these are just some of the claims issues that we, we see on a regular basis. Um, and, and these are all little uh, areas where you might be able to improve your ability to respond to claims. And so, you know, one thing that we see is, is frequency and severity of claims by one insured. Sometimes that's related to the, the report they're using. Sometimes it's related to their agreement. Sometimes it's related to how they're writing about a certain condition or, or a thing that they come upon on a regular basis. Um, so what we try to do is when we look at a claim for you in our company, we try to evaluate it outside of this one instance and see if there's any ways we can help you improve that so you don't have claim frequency. Uh, because that can affect your ability to get insured uh, for actual claims. I mean, uh, defense costs, I talked about that a, a bit here today, but obviously that's a big ticket item. Uh, we'd much rather get out of a case than pay an attorney to represent you $25,000 and make you carry that uh, claim cost with you to your next policy. Um, your documents can play a large role in how, how complaints work out. Um, if your contract is sound, you have a better chance of enforcing your defenses and can take a much stronger position uh, with regard to a customer complaint. Um, if your report is written correctly and clearly explains the condition that they're saying they didn't know they had, uh, again, that goes a long way to helping us defuse this without you having to spend money. Um, we talked at length about providing adequate notice of the claim. Uh, spoliation uh, is just a, a fancy legal term for destruction of the evidence. Uh, but we talked about preserving that at the site inspection, which is, is the way you prevent a spoliation issue. Because once that evidence is destroyed, we can't recreate it in order to defend you. And sometimes we need evidence of what was there at the time versus what might be there when the claimant's contractor went out and saw the property. Um, a, lot of, a lot of our problems relate to the claimant's hiring a lawyer who's a moron uh, and can't seem to understand your responsibilities even when they're created by statute. And so sometimes we have to overcome that um, and convince somebody that no matter what they do, this claim isn't going anywhere. Um, there is some difficulty in some states enforcing what we call contracts of adhesion. And that's just a simple legal term for saying it's a one-sided agreement where your client didn't have an opportunity to negotiate the terms. Um, so in some states we can't enforce limit of liability and that affects how we, we deal with the claims when they come in. And then finally, I talked about inflammatory pre-suit communications and everything lives forever. Um, and so make sure you're not engaging in the, the tit for tat 
um, and seeing if you can best somebody and the slurs that you throw at, at them during a, a, a heated dispute. Uh, again, always take the high road and make sure that whatever you write, um, you're willing to stand by even, even a year later. You take some questions or? And Joe, yeah, I just wanted to uh, mention to all the attendees, you can ask questions, feel free to ask questions. Uh, we're trying to handle them as they come in. And also talking about um, inflammatory pre-suit communications. Internachi has a free online course for members. It's called Customer Service and Communications Course. So if you're answering the phone, you may wanna jump into the middle of that course where uh, we have a section, a couple chapters on how to answer the phone and yeah. handle consumer complaints especially if you hire somebody like an office manager who's on the phone a lot uh, handling the phones, you may wanna push um, them through the course and uh, get some extra training on how to handle that. It's called the customer service and communications course. And, and I gotta tell you, you, listen, understand those of you who are attending this webinar, what a huge advantage it is for you to have access to these things like the, as Ben was just discussing for free. Um, where else are you gonna get this information? And, and it comes from people who are very knowledgeable about what you do and, and like people like Ben, who's been a home inspector. Um, it is a huge advantage to you as an inspector, whether you're a big operation or a small one to belong to an organization like InterNACHI, because without these, these added tools, you're out there flying blind. Um, and, you know, and, and I gotta tell you too, uh, this partnership with us in InterNACHI, I, I, I'll, I'll say that a lot of my claims are, are are fading away, the things that I used to see happen all the time. And it's because of the education they get from, from Ben and, and from the people he brings to these webinars and to the, the things they teach you in the school. Um, and so I, you know, use these things to your advantage. These tools are there to help you prevent, you know, what can be a catastrophic financial loss for you. And it's as simple as watching a video. And, and I gotta tell you, it, whether you've been in business for a year or 10 years, refresh, getting a refresher on that type of thing, business communications, is a huge advantage to you and, and will really help you in the long run. So take advantage of all those things. You, you know, you, you, really, you really don't, from a claims perspective, I, I don't think you really grasp how, how many tools are available to you just by being a member um, and, and that can keep you from having to call me and, and tell me about a claim you have. Um, it, it's really huge. So take full advantage of that. I think your initial response is is critical too, and in, in, in taking that course and, and learning what what um, Internachi has to say on their customer service is important because oftentimes I think what you'll find is your clients might call you initially and just want to vent about something, and if you can diffuse them and educate them and listen to them and be empathetic, that goes a long way in terms of keeping you out of hot water. And, and just diffusing a situation that could otherwise be contentious. So it's, it's that critical point of, of answering the phone, being empathetic, whether uh, they are 100% in the wrong, uh, hear them out, go visit if necessary, and, um, and listen to them and, and listen to what they have to say and respond accordingly. So good call, Ben, on, on recommending that. That'll go a long way. Yeah. So you wanna take a look at some of these questions here, Joe? Yeah. Uh, one question about, um, about uh, carrying tail insurance after retirement and how long is necessary. And I guess the, the need for tail insurance, um, it depends first on um, what the statute of limitations is in, in your state and, um, and, and every state is different on that. Um, and it's a personal decision as to how long you wanna carry it. 
Um, you have the option of one year, two year, three year tail policies. Um, and one of the nice features, I think, of the InterNACHI program from, uh, from a value proposition standpoint is for those that are part of the program and have been with us for three years or longer and ultimately dissolve the business at retirement, having reached the age of 55 or older, we'll give you a five-year free tail policy uh, at no additional charge, which will save you thousands of dollars on the back end. And that's not a fun check to cut. Um, hmm. when you're looking to retire, when the income is presumably not coming in and you have to pay for insurance for all of your past inspections. And oftentimes inspectors get blindsided by that, not even realizing that they have trailing liability and have to continue to insure their past work. So I think it's definitely a point worth keeping in mind when you're looking at insurance is what, the, what your tail options are and, um, and how long to keep it. And Joe, um, can you talk a little bit about what the the statute of limitations means from the date of discovery, the date of uh, sure. date of uh, the inspection and how that relates? So the statutes of limitations obviously vary from state to state. And there's some states that have home inspector regulations that have a specific statute of limitations for home inspection claims. Pennsylvania, for example, uh, the way the statute is written says that um, it's one year from the date of the delivery of the inspection report to the client. Um, and that's the cutoff. Some states have longer ones. If you go right across the river to New Jersey, it's a four-year statute of limitations. Um, the median, the average is two years, um, but we have some as high as six and four and, and some as low as a year. Uh, if you're in a state that doesn't have a particular statute of limitations for inspection claims, it's gonna go by when we talked at the beginning about negligence and breach of contract, it's gonna go by the statute of limitations for that state for that particular claim. Um, and again, negligence is usually two years um, and, and professional negligence is usually two years and uh, contract claims are usually you know, between two and six. So the other thing that comes up with the statute of limitations is some states adopted what we call the discovery rule. And what that means is that the statute of limitations doesn't start to run until the client knows or reasonably should know that they might have a claim. Uh, I had an inspector get a letter from a 25-year-old inspection uh, where they alleged that the inspector missed a stucco defect 25 years ago. It came up in the inspection for the current buyer, uh, and they want to come back and sue the inspector for the repairs. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example, uh, but some states have this discovery rule where, for example, in New Jersey that does apply it, it's four years from when the claimant should have known they had a claim against you. Well, we could be talking about 10 years. At that point, you know, depending on the nature of the claim and, and the system or component involved. And so uh, it's a huge issue in the agreements that we write for our insureds. Uh, in the states where we're allowed, we contractually limit that period to a year. Um, and we've been able to uphold that in many states. Uh, but for the most part, when we're talking about the tail, remember that if you do an inspection today and you go out of business tomorrow, depending on which state you're in, there might be a one, two, or four, or six year period where somebody can sue you for that claim. And even if the business is dissolved, they can still sue. They, the business might not have any assets, um, but you might, and they might find a way to pierce the corporate veil and get at your assets four years later. And so that's why you have a tail. Some states require that you have a tail um, when you cease doing business as a, as a home inspector. And so depending on what state you're in, you need to be wary of that. If, if you're insured by us, 
you would reach out to Ben or somebody on our, our, uh, our response team and they would help you uh, determine how long of a tail you need. But it, it really should be based on how long your, your exposure is to a claim. If you're selling your business um, or buying an inspection business, you wanna make sure that um, the person opposite you uh, at that negotiation is obtaining a tail policy. Um, so if you're, if you're buying a business, you want to make sure that that buyer puts a tail policy in place to cover any claims because you don't want to buy the business and assume all the liabilities and the risk. You just want to assume the assets. And so in that situation, you want to make sure that there's a tail policy in place for the company you're buying that, that insurance or that inspection business from uh, so that their policy is triggered if there's a claim after you purchase the business. This is just the, the contact information for Ben and I. Um, and for the InterNACHI insurance program there. Um, if you have questions about claims or how we deal with them, uh, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, email is always best for me um, because it allows me to respond um, throughout the day and no matter what I'm doing. Uh, so th that's the best way to get a hold of me. And then Ben's contact information is there. If you have any questions about the coverages, the pricing or, or any of that stuff, you should definitely uh, reach out to Ben. Um, if we have time, I'm happy to take questions or I, I'm I've been watching the clock, so I'm not really sure where we're at. Yeah, you want to take some questions, Ben? Benji sure. and Garrison. So, Joe, we have one question here, and it, it kind of goes back to what you were just saying with regard to tail insurance. Um, if, if the business is closed um, and someone files a lawsuit with the name defendant being that LLC that no longer is in existence, how easy, how easy is it to then pierce that veil that technically doesn't exist? And it's my understanding if you're in a licensed state, it's a licensed professional, your personal assets could be at stake. If you're like, like a doctor, for example, um, they're, they don't have insurance, they would be personally liable in the, in the event of a malpractice suit. Can you uh, elaborate on that at all? Well, it's true. And it, as far as your individual liability as a licensee, you know, it depends on the state. And, and right now, I think we have roughly, I think there's 32 licensed states at this point, if I'm not mistaken, I could be off by a couple there. Um, but in the states where there's actually a license involved, that's, that's the universe of states where they might be able to sue you individually, even if you have a, an LLC or an LP or a, uh, whatever you might have as a corporate structure. Um, if you're out there doing business without a corporate structure, it's always you 24 seven. Um, so if you're out there operating as a, a solo operator or a DBA with no actual corporate structure, well, then your personal assets are always at stake. Um, but if you have a corporate structure in place, the idea is that that's supposed to take the hit and insulate you from having your personal assets exposed. Now, where a lot of inspectors get uh, caught up in, the, in a, a problem with that is um, if it's a smaller business, for example, and, and you're operating that checkbook like it's your personal checkbook and you're paying you know, a utility bill for your residence, or you're, you're using the gas card to buy the gas for your personal travel. It's the mixing of, of those assets between the corporate entity and you personally that can trigger a situation where somebody can get a judgment against the business, the LLC, and then enforce that judgment against the individual. And so you have to be really careful, especially with the smaller operations, that everything is completely separate, that your personal life and your personal expenses uh, don't appear in the checkbook for the business. Um, but 
if you do have a situation where they can pierce the corporate veil, if, if they can show um, that there's a nexus or there's, there's a commonality between you and the business in terms of the finances, well, then um, they can seek to pierce the corporate veil and go after your personal assets. Um, some of those assets may be uh, insulated because of marriage or trust, but it, it puts you in a really bad position. So the first piece of advice I can give you is make sure you have a corporate entity. Um, and then make sure that you're not mixing any of those assets together in such a way that somebody could say, you're really operating as the business, therefore I get to take your stuff too. You know, the other problem that ties into the tail coverage is inspectors go out and they close their business and they get served with papers and they say, well, eh, the business doesn't exist anymore. So, uh, you know, go ahead and sue. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to do anything about this. And the plaintiff goes out there and sues. And they get a default judgment against the company for fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, and the judgment is entered. Then they file the action to enforce the judgment against you personally. And once that starts to happen, you've already basically waived your ability to challenge the liability and the amount of damages that were awarded in the other case because you didn't appear. So now you're stuck with that number, and you're going to pay out of pocket for an attorney to represent you to protect your house. Um, not a situation you want to ever be in. So uh, I'll say that the tail insurance would protect you in that instance, because even though the business is closed, the tail insurance would provide you with a defense. So if it's our tail policy, even though your business doesn't exist, it gets sued. We're going to hire a lawyer right away to represent your business so that that default doesn't happen so that you're not, you're not out there exposed. And maybe it's a situation where it needs to be resolved. And the reality on that tail policy is that you don't need to buy home inspector insurance anymore, right? So as much as it pains me because it comes out of my pocket, um, if you don't have to worry about the effect of the claim, let the tail policy pay and get it off the books and get rid of it before they find a reason to try to go after your personal assets. But that's where the tail really protects you is it provides you with an, a defense and indemnity after your business is closed and you're not earning an income anymore. And like Ben Garrison said, it, it is a big check to write when you're going out of business, but a prudent business person should plan for the exit at, well in advance and, and have a strategy in place and, and be aware that these may be costs you might have to incur at the time you close and, and prepare accordingly. Um, and so just make sure of that. And again, if you're buying a business, you really want to make sure that the seller has a tail policy in place so you're not buying the liabilities. Because even if, even if you're not buying the liabilities and they sue you, you might still have some defense expense there showing that you're not responsible in the first place. Any other yeah, questions? We had a question here about uh, body cams, Joe. As, as, as technology increases and, and we, get, um, we see people, inspectors using body, body cams, do you think they do them uh, a disservice or do you think they're helpful? I guess it would all depend on the circumstance and, and what, what happens. Yeah, I, I, I've had one, at least one or more times where the body cam has uh, made a claim go away. Um, I had one where an inspector had a body cam. Um, after the inspection, the buyer filed a claim with their homeowners because of a leak in the, uh, the oil storage tank that was in the basement in the feed line going from the furnace to the tank. And my inspector had a body cam footage that showed no stains or anything on the floor. And so that claim went away really quick. Um, but one thing you need to keep in mind too, whether you're an inspector or anybody else using this technology is some states require you to get permission. 
uh, to have somebody's, avoid, somebody's voice appear on the tape or somebody's image appear on the tape. Uh, even though it's not gonna be published, uh, there's still some states that would require that you at least get somebody to, or, or make them aware uh, that they may be observed on camera or be, or be recorded. Um, for our insureds that do that, we provide them with a waiver form um, that they can have people sign. Um, but, but for the most part, you need to know in your state whether or not you're obligated to, to get a waiver signed um, for any filming that you're going to do at somebody else's property. And if you are an international member and you're interested in more details about the insurance program that Joe and Ben Garrison have been talking about, you can log into your account, into your uh, homepage dashboard, scroll down that homepage after you log in as a member into the InterNACHI account and click the details button under the insurance box. So you'll see insurance and click details. There's no form to send out. There's the, you go to the next page, there's details about all the insurance details and information that you need. These even some uh, videos of Joe. Uh, you can watch Joe talk about some details about the insurance program. Any last words, Joe or Ben, before we say goodbye? The only thing I would say is, is you know, keep in mind that um, anything like this, any claim or, or callback requires a response. And, and just think about it. The simplest way to think about it is how, do you, how would you want a business um, that you have a, a, a complaint about uh, to handle you and to treat you? Um, and if you keep that in mind and, and try to be a professional throughout the process, um, most of these things will go away. Um, but we're here to help you for the ones that don't. Um, and so, you know, if you have any questions about claims or anything uh, related to our company, please feel free to reach out to me. And again, I want to thank Ben and, and, and everybody who attended for, for giving us the opportunity to speak to you today. I really do appreciate it. For sure. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for your time. Uh, we're really proud of the program that we put together for the insurance uh, with InterNACHI. We, we've put all these risk management tools in place to better serve the home inspection industry and InterNACHI members. So there's the URL at the bottom of the, uh, of the slide here with more information. Uh, you can find an application to fill out if you want, if you're interested in getting a quote and then our contact information as well. If uh, any questions or uh, comments afterwards, feel free to reach out. Don't hesitate, please. Joe Deneler, Ben Garrison, thank you so much for taking some time out for us and answering all the questions that we have. And there's Joe's and Ben's uh, contact information. If you have more questions, feel free to contact them at their email or the phone call. Uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. Stay safe and healthy, everybody. Thank you Thanks, so ben. much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. everybody. Bye-bye.